Hey, welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. Strange Talk Podcast is a true crime podcast dedicated to all things strange, from conspiracy theories to murders to true crime. Obviously, I already said that. I know I'm repeating myself, but you're probably wondering why the audio sounds a little different, and that's because right now my computer is running very slow. I don't know if it has to do with the RAM or the processor, but for some reason, when I try to open up any application, it decides to just take a shit on itself and just go very slow. So I have to do the old school way of when I first started the podcast by using just my cell phone. So for those of you that don't know and you're new to the podcast, welcome. Welcome to Strange Talk Podcast. But when I originally first started this podcast, I was actually called The Rant, and I didn't really know where I wanted to go with it. I just would rant about stupid things from Marvel to video games, and then I just kind of just decided to get into true crime because I was super into it and everything, and yeah. So uh, I would originally just use my cell phone, and for those of you that don't know, I'm sponsored by Anchor, but I also host my podcast through Anchor. So if you don't know what Anchor is, Anchor is an application that you can download on your phone through Google or through um, iTunes or the App Store, and you can use your cell phone to start your podcast and start recording right away. And it allows you to edit it, and then it even has a web-based program where you can, it's just strictly through the web, you don't have to download it or anything, and you can edit and everything. If you already have pre-recorded files and you just want to edit them, you can do, you can actually upload your files. So it actually really helps you out a lot. And yes, I am sponsored by them, and this is just an extra ad, I guess, if you will, on top of the ad that you hear in the beginning of the episodes. But yeah, I'm sponsored them. So I digress. But um, so, yeah, that's why I'm using my cell phone. So if the audio doesn't sound as great or it doesn't sound top notch or you heal, you heal, you hear little dinks or bumps. That's because I'm messing with the cell phone. And I'm sorry for that if it's annoying. But let's move on to why you're actually listening to this episode. So today's episode is dedicated to I know if you're listening to this you're probably wondering, like, why the fuck am I doing it right now? Well, sorry, I couldn't get around to it. I couldn't make the time for it. But today's episode is dedicated to mothers. And more specifically, it's dedicated to mothers who have killed. Because let's face it, this is a strange talk podcast. It's a true crime podcast, you know, and I'm a strange fucking individual. I am myself. Wait, I totally fucked that up. But I was trying to say what Lydia Dietz says from Beetlejuice. But anyways, so yeah, it's going to be about mothers who killed. So the first case that I'm actually going to be talking about, if you never heard of her, it happened in the very early 2000s. Um, I swear to God, I could have sworn that it happened in like the early 90s, but never mind. It happened apparently on June 20th of 2001. And that woman's name or mother is Andrea, Andrea Pia Yates. She was born July 2nd, 1964, and she was a former resident of Houston, Texas. So, if you don't know who she is, my God, she... I mean, I don't want to say she's a bitch, but at the same time, it sucks. She kind of is a bitch. But um, what sucks about it is because she was going through a very... Her psychosis and her mental health were very diminished, and it sucks but that's what happens and i and now that we live in a in a time where we're more aware of mental illness and we have more mental awareness week and all that stuff it, it's kind of dimming down but this was at a time when mental a lot a lot of people talked about their mental health it was just kind of like buck up kid well you'll be okay that type of thing so on july 26 2006 
A Texas jury in her retrial found that Yates was not guilty by reason of insanity. And you're wondering, what the fuck did she do? Well, Yates was born in Hayesville, Texas, the youngest of the five children of Judah Karen Kohler, a German immigrant, and Andrew Emmett Kennedy, whose parents were Irish immigrants. She suffered from bulimia during her teenage years. She also suffered from depression, and at the age of 17, she spoke to a friend about wanting to commit suicide. So let's suffice us to say she was suffering pretty, you know, badly from mental stress and mental health. She was already suffering from bulimia. She graduated from Milby High School in 1982, and she was a class valedictorian and captain of the swim team and an officer in the National Honor Society. She was pretty much all around what you would expect, even though she was suffering from her mental illnesses. Gates completed a two-year pre-nursing program at the University of Houston and graduated from the University of Texas School of Nursing. From 1986 until 1994, she worked as a registered nurse at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. In the summer of 1989, she met Russell, or what he liked to be called Rusty, Gates, two months in her junior year at the Sunscape Apartments in Houston. They soon moved in together and were married April 17, 1993. They announced that they would seek to have as many babies as nature would allow, and bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, Texas. Their first child, Noah, was born in February of 1994, just before Rusty accepted a job offer in Florida, so they relocated to a small trailer in some... Why can I not say that fucking word? Welcome to Strange Talk Podcast, where professionalism is at hand. Uh, Seminole, I guess? By the time of birth, their third child, Paul, um, they had moved back to Houston and purchased a GMC motorhome. So they moved around a lot. They They never really set roots. They created roots, but they didn't set them. Following the birth of her fourth child, Luke, Yates became very depressed, and on June 16, 1999, Rusty found her shaking and chewing on her fingers, okay? That's how severely gone her mental state was. I wouldn't say severely gone, but that's kind of like the red flags that he should have... I don't want to place the blame on him because, like I said, this was at a time when mental health awareness wasn't really looked at, you know, so seriously as it is today so on june 16th he found her shaking and chewing her fingers and then the next day she attempted to commit suicide by overdosing on some pills she was admitted to the hospital and prescribed antidepressants soon after her release she begged russie to let her die as she held a knife up to her neck you know a part of me probably thinks too she might have suffered from another psychosis like schizophrenia because well, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, for those of you that already know, then you know. But she, she later, she starts claiming that she hears voices. Once again hospitalized, she was given a cocktail of medications including Haldol and antipsychotic drugs. Her condition improved immediately and she was prescribed it on her release. After that, Rusty moved the family into a small house for the sake of her health. She appeared temporarily stabilized. But in July of 1999, Yates suffered a nervous breakdown which culminated in two suicide attempts and two psychiatric hospitalizations that summer. She was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. Yates' first psychiatrist, Dr. Aileen Starbranch, testified that she urged her and Rusty not to have any more children, as it would guarantee future psychotic depression. 
they conceived their fifth child and final child approximately seven weeks after her discharge. She stopped taking her Haldol medication in March of 2000 and gave birth to her daughter, Mary, on November 30th, 2000. She seemed to be coping very well until the death of her father on March 12th, 2001. Yates then stopped taking her medication and mutilated herself and read the Bible feverishly. She stopped feeding Mary. She became so incapacitated that she required immediate hospitalization. And on April 1st, 2001, she came under the care of Dr. Mohammed Saeed. She was treated and released. And on May 3rd, 2001, she degenerated back into her near catatonic state and filled the bathtub in the middle of the day. She would later confess to police that she had planned to drown the children that day, but had decided against doing it then. She was hospitalized the next day after a scheduled doctor visit. Her psychiatrist determined she was probably suicidal and had filled the tub to drown herself. But this would not be her intention. At the time, Yates family was living in the Houston suburb of Clear Lake City. She continued under Dr. Saeed's care until June 20th, 2001, when Rusty left for work, leaving her alone to watch the children against Dr. Saeed's instructions to supervise her around the clock. He wasn't supposed to go to work. He was supposed to stay and supervise her because of her psychosis, because of her mental health. And he felt he needed to go to work. And I can't imagine the struggle and of just being in that situation of like, what do I do? Do I stay here or do I struggle? Like, do I not go to work? What do I do? His mother, Dora Yates, had been scheduled by him to arrive an hour later to take over for her. In the space of that hour, unfortunately, she drowned all five of their children. She started with John, Paul, and Luke, and then laid them in her bed. She then drowned Mary, whom she left floating in the tub. Noah came in and asked what was wrong with Mary. He then ran, but soon she caught and drowned him. She left him floating in the tub and laid Mary and John's arms in the bed. She then called the police repeatedly, saying she needed an officer, but would not say why. Then she called Rusty, telling him to come home right away. And if I believe so, I could be wrong. It might be another one, another case that's very similar to this, but that through all the research that I've been finding, so I'm, I'm starting to doubt that this is the actual case that that happened but there is a case that's similar to this but this could be the one but there is a case where a woman who was suffering from postpartum psychosis decided to drown her children because she heard voices telling telling them telling her to like drown the children to set them free or some shit like that and when she did she called the police saying that it she was um her car was stolen by two black men and it created an outrage among white people <laughs> towards African Americans, even more so than there is today. And, you know, so there was a lot of people like, it was almost like a fucking mob mentality with like pitchforks and fucking torches and shit, like going out after fucking Frankenstein's monster. Cause he's not Frankenstein, okay? It's Frankenstein's monster. Cause Dr. Frankenstein is the one that created the fucking monster. It's not, he's not Frankenstein. Anyways. <laughs> Um, so, you know, a lot of people were upset because then it, it had to take for them to finally course the woman responsible for drowning her children, having confessed to drowning them. And, you know, a lot of African American, the African American community was really upset after that because they were saying like, see, like you were already putting the blame on us when it, because it was a white 
you know, a white woman and she's blasted all over the news and media and everything. But if it was a black woman under the same circumstances, you would have already charged her with the crime and, you know, so it was a, a huge debate. But I remember that very vividly around that time when it happened. And there's a movie loosely based on that actual case. It's actually a really good movie. It stars, I want to say, Julie Moore, I think her name is, and um, Samuel L. Jackson. And it's called Freedom Land. And it's actually a really, really, really good movie. Like I said, it's loosely based on the, the case of that. Very loosely based, but it is around the similar, it has a similar uh, nature of what had happened. So, during the trial, Yates confessed to drowning her children. Prior to her second trial, she told Dr. Michael Wellner that she waited for Rusty to leave for work that morning before filling the tub because she knew he would have prevented her from harming them. After the murders, police found the family dog locked up. Rusty advised Wellner that it had normally been allowed to run free and was so when he had left the house that morning leading the psychiatrist to allege that she locked it in a cage to prevent it from interfering with her killing the children one by one. Rusty got a family friend, George Parnham, to act as her attorney. Although the defense expert testimony agreed that Yates was psychotic, Texas law requires that in order to successfully assert the insanity defense, the defendant must prove that he or she could not discern right from wrong at the time of the crime. So in March of 2002, a jury rejected the insanity defense and found her guilty. Although the prosecution had sought the death penalty, the jury refused that option. The trial court sentenced her to life imprisonment in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice with the eligibility for parole in 40 years. But on January 6, 2005, a Texas Court of Appeals reversed these convictions because California psychiatrist and prosecution witness Dr. Park Dietz admitted he had given materially uh, I'm sorry, yeah, materially false testimony during the trial. In his testimony, Dietz had stated that shortly before the murders, an episode of Law and Order had aired featuring a woman who drowned her children and was acquitted of murder by reason of insanity. Author and later Yale University lecturer Susan O'Malley was covering the trial for Oh! The Oprah Magazine, The New York Times Magazine, and NBC News. And she had previously been a writer for Law and Order and immediately reported that no such episode existed. Two years later in 2004, Law and Order Criminal Intent did air the episode Magnificent based in part on Yates' case. The appeal court held unanimously that the jury might have been influenced by Deed's false testimony and therefore a new trial would be necessary. So if he wouldn't have lied about the episode, he practically gave them an episode. <laughs> On January 9th, 2006, Yates again entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. And on February 1st, 2006, she was granted release on bail on the condition that she admitted to a mental health treatment facility. On July 26, 2006, after three days of deliberations, Yates was found not guilty by reason of insanity, as defined by the state of Texas. She was therefore committed to the North Texas State Hospital Vernon campus. In January 2007, she was moved to the Kerrville State Hospital, a low security mental facility in Kerrville, Texas, or Kerrville. Kerrville! Although psychiatrists for both Texas state prosecutors and her defense lawyers agreed that she was severely mentally ill with one of several psychotic diseases at the time she killed her children. The state of Texas asserted 
that she was, by legal definition, aware enough to judge her actions as right or wrong despite her mental defect. The prosecution further implied spousal revenge as motive for the killings. Despite the conclusion of defense experts that there was no evidence to support such a motive, although the original jury believed she was legally aware of her actions, they disagreed that her motive was purely spousal revenge. According to the trial testimony in 2006, Dr. Saeed advised Rusty, a former, a former NASA engineer, not to leave Yates unattended. However, he began leaving her alone with the children in the weeks leading up to the drownings for short, short periods of time, apparently to improve her independence. He had announced at a family gathering the weekend before the drownings that he had decided to leave her home alone for an hour each morning and evening so that she would not become totally dependent on him and his mother for maternal responsibilities. Yates' brother, Brian Kennedy, told Larry King on a broadcast on CNN's Larry King Live that Rusty expressed to him in 2001 while transporting her to Daraview a treatment of facility that all depressed people needed was a swift kick in the pants to get them motivated. Wow. So, that was his brother that said that. So, see what I mean? Back then, we weren't really so... We were kind of like, ah, you know, you're okay. You, you want to kill yourself? Ah, you're fine. You're just joking around. It's kind of a fucked up joke, but you're just joking around. You won't do it. Um, her mother, Judah Kennedy expressed shock when she heard of Rusty's plan while at the gathering with them, saying Yates wasn't stable enough to care for the children. She noted that Yates demonstrated she wasn't in her right mind when she nearly choked Mary by trying to feed her solid food. So, like I said, um, it's really sad, but, um, so, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of skipping over because there's a, I don't know if you really want me to read all of this, but I guess I'll start right here. This is just some stuff that, um, okay, so the medical community, there, I guess there was some, because like I said, that this is kind of like, the reason why I chose this case in particular too wasn't for the fact that she was just a mother and she killed her children, but it's because, because of this particular case that happened in the early 2000s, that's when an outcry of the medical community came out saying that we need to be more aware of um, postpartum depression, or now it's called postpartum psychosis. But before and then, it was called postpartum depression. Um, So Rusty contended that as a psychiatrist, Dr. Saeed was responsible for recognizing and properly treating Yates' psychosis, not a medically untrained person like himself. Yates claimed that despite his urging to check her medical records for prior treatment, Dr. Saeed had refused to continue her regimen of the antipsychotic pedal, the treatment that had worked for her during her first breakdown back in 1999. And this is what was said, I believe, in a letter. The real question to me is, how could she have been so ill and the medical community not diagnose her, not treat her, and obviously not protect our family from her? Rusty testified that he never knew that she had visions and voices. He said he never knew she had considered killing the children. Neither did Dr. Saeed, even though the delusions could have been found in medical records from 1999. He reluctantly prescribed Haldol, the same drug that worked in a drug cocktail for her um, for her in 1999, but after a few weeks, he took her off the drug, citing his concerns about side effects. 
though her condition seemed to be worsening two days before the drownings, when Rusty drove her to Dr. Saeed's office. He testified, the doctor refused to try Hadal longer or return her to the hospital. He added that his wife was too sick to be discharged from her last day in the hospital in May of 2001. He said he noticed the staff lower their heads as if in shame and embarrassment, turning away without saying a word. The hospital had no other choice due to the 10-day psychiatric hospitalization insurance constraints of their provider, Blue Cross Blue Shield, subtracted by Magellan Health Services. So, um, I mean, I don't really know, but it sounds like what they're saying is that they could have done something more, but if it wasn't because of the insurance and that whole bureaucracy that it comes with fucking insurance and stuff, you know... I'm probably going to do a whole episode on that, too. I know I want to do an episode about the prisons. I know I'm going off topic. I'm sorry. But, um, the ho- like, just the insurance companies and the hospital itself is just kind of fucked up and everything. It- it's, a- it's a sad fucking thing that, you know, there was um, a documentary that I was watching. I can't remember what it was called, but it was about this lady. Um, she, her, her daughter needed, like brain surgery but because she didn't have the proper insurance to cover it they would have to pay out of pocket for the actual insurance i mean for the surgery and it was very expensive but had they gotten that operation the daughter would still be alive but unfortunately she passed away um while she was at a park and that sucks you know it it, we live in a very fucked up healthcare system and and when we want when, when we talk about you know having universal health care and have it free for everybody for some reason we talk about like oh like the governments throw around the word socialist you know oh you're a socialist commie like that's stupid like I, I get it like but isn't that what we're supposed to want isn't that you know what we strive for is that everybody should have the necessities and the needs that they need you know reasonably you know your right to want to live should be a priority but I mean, maybe I'm just a common communist because I believe that we should all be provided universal health care. But anyways, let's back to the case. So Rusty and his birth family claimed a combination of antidepressants improperly prescribed by Dr. Saeed in the days before the tragedy was responsible for Yates' violent psychotic behavior. Andrea was on 450 milligrams of Exafer, Vela vaccine hydrochloride among other medications and was in his opinion severely overmedicated. the psychiatrist said he would reduce the effects or from 450 milligrams to 300 milligrams he protested and quoted his own extensive research on the antidepressant he said he read it he said he read it shouldn't be reduced by more than 75 milligram every three or four days, not 150 milligram in one day. So in the trial, during the trial, basically Rusty was saying that he believes that yes, his wife is responsible for killing the children, but he feels that partly the responsibility lies with the psychiatrist, Dr. Saeed, because he was the one medicating her and he took her off medication or he gave her, he over medicated her as well. So it was a big big fucking thing too so not only that during this case there was a bunch of religious influences 
Media outlets allege that Michael wore Necky, an inerrant preacher whom Rusty had met while attending Auburn University, bears some responsibility for the death due to his fire and brimstone message and certain teachings founding in his newsletter, The Perilous Times, that he received on occasion and which was entered into evidence at the trial. In the aftermath of her 2006 retrial and insanity verdict, television journalist Chris Kumo reported on ABC Primetime that Andrea Yates' delusions were fueled by the extreme religious beliefs of a bizarre, inerrant um, street preacher named Michael Warnecke. Both Rusty Yates and Michael Warnecke have rejected these accusations, saying, no, that's not what it is, brah. You got it wrong. Rusty said his family's relationship with the Warneckes was not that close and that Warnecke did not cause her delusions. Warnecke maintained that his correspondence with them was with the intention of helping them strengthen their marriage and find the love that he says his own family had found in Jesus. Both men agreed the alleged connection between his message and her mental state was nothing more than media-created fiction, and we all know how media loves to create certain stories. I mean, case in point, um, if you want to go back and check out an episode if you're new to the podcast and you haven't heard it yet, but it's... um, school shootings uh that one in particular about the columbine shooting for some reason and even to this day i mean i fuck i know i'm going off topic again but i can't stress this enough my point when the columbine shooting happened and you can even watch a documentary about it too it's called uh we are columbine i think or columbine we're here or something like that it's on hulu is where i found it or it could be on hbo but i know that's where i watched it was on hulu and it's a documentary about the students who actually were there in Columbine, it's about five or six students that give their story and recount the horrible atrocity that they um, witnessed and endured. But um, they even said that the media, for some reason, spinned it like as if they were bullied and they wanted revenge on their bullies and everything. But all of them, most of them, actually, I don't want to say all of them, but most of them go on to say that it was actually them who were bullies and they were these fucking kids that were just douchebag kids and it's funny because on a youtube video when i was doing the research for that episode there was a um a girl like i don't know why what the fuck like i don't want to judge so harshly and so hastily but what the fuck is wrong with some people sometimes this girl was like oh my god they're so cute it's so sad what happened to them i'm so glad that they got revenge and i even commented on it. i was like um i feel sorry for you but you believe very wrongly in what they did you're free to believe what you want to believe but what actually happened was they were not fucking bullied they yeah, sure, they were picked on just like the every other average kid. Like, I was oh, I was picked on in fucking junior high. I don't think I was picked on in high school. I would say junior high was when I was last picked on. But they were, they were the ones that would pick on people. Eric Harris believed himself to be like this cool kid among the fucking nerds or whatever. There was no trench coat mafia or anything. It was just something that was created by the media. Anyways, back to the actual case. Well in prison, Yates stated that she had considered killing the children for two years, adding that they thought she was not a good mother and claimed her sons were developing improperly. She told her her jail psychiatrist, it was a seventh deadly sin, my children weren't righteous. So indeed, it was sort of a religious belief that pushed her into wanting to kill her children. And... I don't know if you've ever dealt with somebody who had a state of mental uh, postpartum psychosis. 
it's not a very um, fun thing and I don't wish that upon anybody because to see somebody you care about and love deteriorate and it's not fun in any sense of the word. It's very sad and it's a very hard thing because it's not just them that's suffering, it's everybody who's suffering, your child, your spouse, your partner, you know, and it sucks because you want to help them but you're not a doctor. So while in prison, Yates stated she had considered killing the children for two years, adding that they thought she was not a good mother. She believed that her children believed that she wasn't a good mother, that they, she felt like everybody judged her. She felt like as if she couldn't do anything right. And um, that's what depression does to a person. But somebody who's severely depressed, as Andrea Yates was, you think that everybody is against you and you, you even believe yourself to hear people talking about you behind your back it, it's 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 a form of anxiety um because if i'm being honest i've i'm pretty sure everybody fucking knows because i've talked about it before and um i tend to like let it come through my work sometimes but i had suffered from depression i had suffered from um you know i still suffer from anxiety so sometimes my type of anxiety that i get is like say if i'm in public I feel like somebody's judging me because I'm like walking funny or I look funny or I look stupid or something or all my anxiety will just come in forms of where I'm laying in bed trying to fall asleep and then my mind's like, hey, remember that time you did something really embarrassing in like high school, middle school, elementary? Let's think about those things (laughs) and then I'll do that and I can't go to sleep or I'm like, fuck, dude, I feel like shit because I feel like a fucking idiot. So that's my form of anxiety. But anyways, uh, continuing on with Andrea Yates, um, she told her jail psychiatrist, it was the seventh deadly sin. My children weren't righteous children. They stumbled because I was evil. The way I was raising them, they could never be saved. They were doomed to perish in the fires of hell. She told her jail psychiatrist that Satan influenced her children and made them more disobedient. Ugh. So, in August of 2004, Rusty filed for divorce, stating that he and Yates had not lived together as a married couple since the day of the murders. The divorce was granted on March 17, 2005, after which Rusty began dating his second wife, Laura Arnold. They married on March 25, 2006, and had one son, and she filed for divorce in 2015. So, he couldn't keep a woman down. So this ends the first case of Andrea Yates. So, you know, as I said, we live in a time now where we're more aware of mental health. And it's very good, but it doesn't just come... One of the things that I I can't stress enough about mental health is that if you feel, you know, you're not right in the head... (laughs) I, I know I'm fucking kind of just disparaging it but if you if you feel like there's something wrong with you or if you feel like you're not normal it's okay you're fine it's okay to feel the way you're feeling you don't have to be ashamed about it but what you do have to do is be able to admit it and go seek help because nobody can help you really you can have the support from your loved ones from a girlfriend from a your partner from a brother from any family member you can have support from them But what it really comes down to is you have to want to get the help. 
you can't just still want to be sad and everything. And I, I know that seems like it's harsh, maybe in, in some kind of way, it may be. But it's true. You have to want to get the help. You can't just expect to just be okay. Because eventually you can you can take that route if you want. And that's fine. You may be more admirable about it, you know, but it doesn't matter. You have to want to get the help in order to get help. You can't just expect that everybody's going to have to do it for you. You have to be the one that wants to get the help to improve yourself and become healthier mentally, you know, and it sucks. Like for me, I just sought help in the way of going to therapy when I was younger because when I was in high school is when it really affected me the most. Um, my senior year, it was kind of okay, although I still struggled with, like, my type of anxiety is that, like, if something I don't like happens, I tend to get very angry, um, easily, and I lash out, so I have anger issues with that. Um, other than that, I still suffer from depression, from bouts of depression, and it's brought on because of how my father recently passed away. Well, it wasn't recently, it was, like, almost, like, eight months ago. So it's still eight months doesn't matter. You know, it's still it's still a fresh wound that's not healing. It's well, it's still healing is what I mean. So, yeah, let's move on to the next case. So the next case that we're going to be discussing is of one named Mitchell Michelle Mitchell Blair. In 2015, a 35-year-old Mitchell Blair was living on the east side of Detroit with her four children when she was evicted for not paying rent. Relatives say she was unable to keep a job and would always call them for money, but those calls stopped when they refused to help and advise her to get a job and go back to school. A shocking discovery, Blair apparently disregarded their advice because on the morning of March 24th, 2015, she was served an eviction notice, but she wasn't there. That's when a crew from the 36th District Court went inside and began began removing furniture from the home. What they removed next wasn't furniture, and it would send shockwaves through the Detroit community. Inside a white, deep freezer located in the living room of the home was the frozen body of a teenage girl wrapped in a large plastic bag. When police arrived, they made yet another discovery, the body of a boy right underneath her. A neighbor didn't waste any time disclosing Michelle's Blair's whereabouts. Police found her at another neighbor's house with her two children, aged 8 and 17, but her other children, Stephen Berry, who was 9, and Stony Blair, 13, were missing. After some brief crash, after some brief questioning, <laughs> Michelle Blair was arrested for murder. When police took her away, they said she proclaimed, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, authorities took the bodies to a morgue to thaw for three days so an autopsy could be performed. The children were identified as Blair's kids, Stephen Barry and Stony Blair. The medical examiner ruled their deaths homicides and determined that they had been in the freezer for at least a couple of years. Oh, man. Michelle Blair confessed to the murders at the Wayne County Circuit Court. She told Judge Dana Hathaway that she killed her demons after finding out they were raping her youngest son, a claim that has never been substantiated. Blair said she returned home one day in August of 2012 to find her son simulating sexual activity using dolls. 
It was then Blair asked him, Why are you doing that? Did anybody ever do this to you? When he told her that his brother Stephen had, she went upstairs to confront him. Blair said he confessed, and that's when she began punching and kicking him before placing a garbage bag over his head until he lost consciousness. Blair stated that she repeatedly poured scalding hot water on his genitals, causing his skin to peel off. She later made Stephen drink Windex and wrapped a belt around her son's neck, lifted him up, lifted him up and asked, Do you like how this feels? Choked with the belt. What if he was like, Choke me harder, daddy. <laughs> Blair said he lost consciousness again. After two weeks of torture, Stephen succumbed to his injuries on August 30th, 2012, and Blair put his body in her deep freezer. Nine months after murdering Stephen, Blair said she found out that Stoney was also raping her, her youngest son. That's when she began starving Stoney and brutally beating her until she died in May of 2013. She was going to turn herself into the police, she said, but when her youngest son told her that he didn't want her to go, she made other arrangements. Blair put Stoney's body in a plastic bag and stuffed her in the deep freezer on top of Stephen and continued living in the home as if nothing were amiss. Stephen and Stoney were in the deep freezer for almost three years, and no one looked for them. They had absentee fathers, and Blair had previously taken them out of school. She told school officials that she was going to teach them at home. When neighbors asked about the children's whereabouts, she always had an excuse. Blair told the judge that she did not feel any remorse over her actions. She said, they had no remorse for what they did to my son. There was no other option. There's no excuse for rape, and I would kill them again if I could. Prosecutor Karen Goldfarb stated that they found no evidence of such a rape. Wayne County Circuit Judge Edward Joseph terminated Mitchell Blair's parental rights of the surviving children. Child Protective Services saw to it that the children were put up for adoption. Michelle Blair pleaded guilty in June of 2015 to two counts of first-degree premeditated murder and is now serving a life sentence at the Huron Valley Correctional Facility in Ypsilanti, Michigan, without the possibility of parole. Jesus, she put them in the fucking freezer. That's some fucking shit, man. So this last final case that we're going to be discussing is of a woman by the name Gigi Jordan. Gigi Jordan is a multi-millionaire, well, self-made millionaire, multi-millionaire, um, who was an executive for a pharmaceutical company. So the ironic twist of it is that she was charged for killing her eight-year-old son who was autistic by mixing a toxic cocktail of pills. And um, here's the story about it. Jordan, a 54-year-old Manhattan socialite and self-made multimillionaire, said it was a mercy killing. She claimed she was trying to save her autistic son, named Jude Mira, from a life of sexual torment at the hands of his father and planned to kill herself next. I didn't see any way out of the situation, she testified. I made a decision that I was going to end my life and Jude's life. But Manhattan Supreme Court Judge Charles Solomon who sentenced Jordan to 18 years in prison for manslaughter, was unswayed by her tearful defense. All of her money, all of her resources, she decided to kill him, he said. 
There were so many things she could have done differently. The sentencing brought to a close a tangled and troubling trial that seemed to raise so many questions as it answered. Was Jude really being sexually abused, or did Jordan just believe he was? And if Jordan's allegations of abuse weren't real, was her child's killing an outcome of delusion or a calculated murder? Jude, she says, was the biological son of her second husband, Bulgarian yoga instructor Emil Tezkov. But he was born while she was still married to her first husband, pharmaceutical executive Ray Mira, whose name the boy carried. The drama began in a locked room at the Ritzy Peninsula Hotel on Manhattan's 5th Avenue in February of 2010. Jordan took her son there because she had run out of other options. She believed that Ray Mira was trying to kill her, which might have led Jude into the custody of Tezkov, who she allegedly... Oh, I'm sorry, who she alleged sexually abused Jude, her son, putting him in a dramatized state that doctors misdiagnosed as autism. Both former husbands have strongly denied the allegations. The murder-suicide was Jude's idea. Jordan testified at her trial last fall. I need to be dead. I need a lot of drugs to die peacefully. That's all, Jordan said at trial, reading what she said was a written dialogue between eight-year-old Jude and herself. Later, she, she said, he wrote, We are going to die anyway. Let's do it ourselves. Convinced, she said, she gave Judge a large dose, I'm sorry, Jude, a large dose, her son Jude, a large dose of Ambien and Xanax. Ooh, nice. Then crushed painkillers into a mixture of vodka and juice and fed the concoction to him with a syringe. She then took pills herself while writing her own suicide letter, Jordan said she had a change of heart. Hearing Jude's labored breathing, she attempted to administer CPR to her dying son, but it was too late. How convenient. Throughout the trial, prosecutors and Justice Solomon questioned Jordan's allegations of abuse. They wondered about the typed messages her son allegedly used to tell her about how his father had mistreated him. Could a nonverbal autistic child really have written them? According to Jordan... She didn't report the alleged abuse directly to police, though she told therapists and in 2008 attempted to meet with the child exploitation investigator in Wyoming. There, she was involuntarily hospitalized and given a psychological evaluation. Police officials said that there is no evidence that Jude was abused and that Tezkov, his father, has not been charged with any crime. Other testimony disputed whether fears that her son was being abused were really what motivated Jordan to kill him. Rita Chrisman, a friend of Jordan's, said that Jordan had been crisscrossing the country pursuing treatments for her son's illness and had become depressed from the effort to care for him. In 2006, before Jordan began claiming that Jude had been abused, she told Chrisman that she intended to kill herself and Jude if he couldn't be cured. Chrisman testified, Jordan's actions on the day of Jude's death also raised questions. Prosecutors said that she coolly transferred millions of dollars into a savings account just before the killing and asked a financial advisor to transfer $125,000 from Jude's trust fund into her own account after poisoning the boy. And although Jordan said that Jude voluntarily took the pills, a medical examiner testified that bruises on his face and chest indicated that they were forced down his throat. When paramedics arrived at Jordan's hotel room two days after she checked in, the first thing she said was, I'm okay, I need an attorney, according to their testimony. 
The jury tasked with determining whether Jordan had committed murder or a lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter driven by extreme emotional disturbance began to deliberate in the last days of October when the trial took place. Meanwhile, Jordan turned her attention outside the courtroom and began making her case in the court of public opinion. She built a website titled The Inamissible Truth in which she claimed that she hadn't gotten a fair trial because evidence in her favor had been suppressed and with a few days and within a few days of testimony ending she had given interviews to the Wall Street Journal and CBS New York and Dr. Phil McGraw the daytime television host if you had to do this over would you end his life again Dr. Phil asked her she said i would have done a better job of making sure i ended my own jordan replied ultimately the jury found Jordan guilty of manslaughter, not murder. A juror told the Times that even if her allegations of abuse were untrue, Jordan clearly believed them, indicating the kind of extreme emotional disturbance that she that was required for the lesser conviction. But her media blitz proved problematic during her sentencing. Justice Solomon, who said Thursday that he did not believe much of Jordan's testimony, pointed to her interview with McGraw as evidence that she hadn't expressed genuine remorse for her son's death. One would think that I would hear something from the defendant about having remorse for what she did. Solomon said she had five years to think about this, never said I'm sorry once. So, I mean, I'm going to kind of play detective here, but I just think that the multimillionaire or self-made multimillionaire, you know, she lived an extreme life. Not an extreme life, but she lived a life that she could do whatever she wanted and she didn't have to worry about fucking money. She had abundance of it. So my guess is that she, her idea of having a perfect life was being hindered by the fact that she had an autistic son and she didn't want to take care of him. So rather than giving him up for adoption and living with the stigma of... The, of I mean, honestly, that would just be a hell of a lot easier of just giving him up or, you know... Just having the balls to say, hey, I don't want to take care of him anymore. Because, I mean, no matter what, you're still going to look fucking down upon regardless. She probably thought, maybe I can just kill him and and get away with murder and just say something happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I'm just assuming, okay? I'm just assuming. Because, you know, she... And what's fun, what's weird about it is that she had all the money in the world to take care of him. She could have taken care of him without so much of a problem but for some reason she just didn't want to deal with having an autistic son which is fucking sad you would rather not have a child just because they're autistic the world we live in man some people well unfortunately that's gonna do it for this episode of strange talk podcast thank you for listening to episode 32 mothers who've killed um hope you guys enjoyed it knows a little different but, hey, that's the way I do's it. So, if you, um, I don't want to say that I'm going to do a This Week in Crime. I may do a This Week in Crime, but I may not. I'm probably going to do one. Who knows? We'll see if I have the time. Um, but thank you for taking the time to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. Because I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, especially in the genre of true crime. So, thank you for taking the time for listening to, to listen to Strange Talk Podcast. Because there's plenty of others that you could have, but you chose to choose 
Strange Talk Podcast. So if you want to reach out to me, you can do so. If you're not already, follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. Where is that? That's Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. You can keep up to date with what I'm doing, what I got going on. I usually post a bunch of random memes, stupid ones. I'm very immature when it comes to my sense of humor because it's very dark, but I like it's that way. Um, if you want to send me news articles, you can do so through the Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, or if you want to keep it old school and more personal, if you want to send me whatever, you can send me an article that will be featured in This Week in Crime at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. That's the email. What's that again? It's Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. So thank you again for choosing Strange Talk Podcast. Without you, the listener, Strange Talk Podcast would not be where it is today. So give yourself a good pat on the back, and I hope you guys had a good Mother's Day. And to all the mothers who are listening to this right now, you are awesome. You are your own fucking tiger, woman, warrior, (laughs) whatever. Um, And you're doing what other people probably couldn't do. You're doing a lot better than what the mothers in this fucking episode are doing. So, you know, hey, there's that. So, again, from Strange Talk Podcast, happy Mother's Day.